You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Condoms have been around for a long time, and condoms work pretty well. There are those stats around uh, condoms' failure rates of 15 to 18 percent. Those are when people use them incorrectly, and a lot of people do use them incorrectly. People joke about sex ed programs where they're rolling the condom onto the banana as if that's not obvious, as if it's not something any idiot could do. But clearly, there are a lot of idiots out there who can't do it, and maybe proper condom application does need to be a part of a sex ed program, and we should stop rolling our eyes when the lady from Planned Parenthood stands in front of the room and grips the tip and rolls the condom down onto the banana correctly because so many people, when you look at the failure rate for condoms, aren't able to do it correctly. They put it on backwards. They don't leave enough air room in the tip by squeezing the tip as you roll a condom on that the condom breaks because the guy basically ends up thrusting his way out of it, pushing his way through it. Or people don't hold the condom when they're pulling out or they ejaculate inside the condom and stay and then their dick begins to deflate and the semen leaks out. There's a lot of ways in which people use the condom wrong. The standard reliable condom. Condoms used correctly are hugely effective and not just effective at preventing uh, pregnancy but also STI transmission. Condoms very effective protection against gonorrhea. Extremely effective against HIV transmission. Very effective uh, against syphilis, not perfect. Uh, very effective against uh, transmitting herpes, not perfect. Those skin-to-skin transmissions where there may be sores involved like syph or herpes, uh, condoms offer a great deal of protection but not absolute protection, not as much protection as they might provide for gonorrhea or HIV. But condoms, they're awesome and people should use them. But people bitch about them and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch and bitch. And we've covered the bitching on this show. And you know how I feel about the people who bitch about condoms. I feel like they are full of shit. Here's my tip for people who, oh, I can't feel anything with a condom. What you need to do is put the condom on early. You don't put the condom on right before you thrust into someone. You don't put the condom on right at the moment where you want to penetrate. You put the condom on a bit before so the condom can come up to dick temperature. Right, Because then it's not going to be this massive decrease in sensation. Also, acclimate yourself to condoms. Reconcile yourself to condoms first. So you're going to have to use these, okay? Then acclimate to them, which means masturbating with them. Put a condom on and jerk it. Realize that condoms are your friend. If you have a parent, if you're a young person and you have access to condoms at school and you have a crazy sex-negative mom who's going to blow her stack if your socks are crusty or your T-shirt is – basically cardboard when she picks it up off the floor or one of her hand towels goes missing, a condom. You can jack off in a condom and put your load in there and tie it off and put it in your pocket and take it back to school, now full, and throw it away. Pretty effective, right? And my ultimate retort always to people who say, oh, I can't feel any of the condom. Nobody notices when the condom breaks. Guys are fucking – the same guy who five minutes before you made him put the condom on was saying that he can't feel anything with the condom on. There's so much less sensation with the condom. The sex hardly worth having. He'll be fucking you and the condom will break and he won't realize it. He won't notice, which just gives the lie to this bullshit idea, this, this, this assertion, this bullshit lie that – the condoms really fuck with the sensation because if that was true, that moment when the condom broke, there would be this surge of sensation into the guy's right into the head of his dick that would be like 
you electrocuted his dick. He would go flying across the room at that moment because it was just suddenly so much more intense. That never happens. The condom breaks. The guy doesn't even notice. Which brings us to the condom of the future, a future in which a lot more people are getting sexually transmitted infections. There was a lot of buzz online recently about something called the galactic cap. It is an innovation in condom technology. Uh, There's an online video you should go watch it. It is radonkulous. Basically, you know those things in the airport when you're going to take a crap and there's that liner you can put on the toilet seat, you pull it out of that. It's like that toilet seat liner, that U-shaped toilet seat liner, but it's made out of this second skin polyurethane sticky tape and you put it on the head of your penis. And instead of that, you know, the hole in the paper toilet seat cover that you shit through, there's a hole in this thing that you come through, right? That you come out of. But you put that on the tip of your dick, and according to the creators of the Galactic Cap condom, you can put it on days in advance. You can just lope around town wearing this thing, right? And then when you want to fuck, there's a second piece. It's like a two-part condom. And you take the little sticky tape uh, wrapper off the second piece, and you stick it onto the head of your dick. It's like putting a little dunce cap on your penis. It's a condom that is glued to the head of your cock. And it's the reservoir tip, basically, that little end of the condom. So the shaft isn't encased in latex. The ridge of the glands of the penis is not encased in latex. There's just a little cap over your pistlet, over your urethral opening, your meatus. That's there to catch all the cum. What could possibly go wrong? Besides fucking everything, what could possibly go? People are excited about this because there hasn't been much change in condom technology really in decades or centuries people started sticking their dicks in sheep guts and basically doing the condom thing long ago. People are excited about this because, oh, you'll be able to feel on the shaft and feel on the head of the penis. This thing is going to fall the fuck off, right? That is the battering ram business end of your dick that it is glued to. The idea that the moisture in there and the, the motion and the pulling in and out and back and forth, particularly if you're fucking someone in the ass – isn't going to just peel this fucking thing off. If there's enough glue in this toilet seat liner that's attached to your dick and cap to hold it in place, then you are never getting it off. It, it has to be crazy glued to your dick. Unless you are the politest fucker on the planet. Unless your idea of boning someone is to very gently kind of rock back and forth so as not to knock the hat off the tip of your penis. You will probably knock that off the tip of your penis. And then there's the moment of ejaculation where this thing swells and fills. And this is supposed to be the solution to people can't use condoms correctly. The, the manufacturers, the designer of the galactic cap points to the condom failure rate. As a reason for people switching to his magical galactic cap, the condom application process is a one-step process. Roll that fucking thing down your dick. The galactic cap is a two-step process. The toilet seat liner for the head of your penis and the magic hat. You glue to it in the second step. That people who can't put a condom on correctly are going to put this two-step toilet seat liner magic hat thing on the tip of their dick correctly? I don't believe it. This will have a higher failure rate. And that's not even getting to sexually transmitted infections. You are at much higher risk for sexually transmitted infections. Why does a condom offer a great deal of protection against skin-to-skin-based herpes, syphilis, which is about sores? Because it covers them. 
If your condom just is a little hat that sits on the tip of your dick, it's not going to cover that shit, right? Also, there's a lot of blood vessels close to the surface. If you're engaging in anal sex and you're battering away with your dick and there's any sort of friction, any sort of chafing and the penis bleeds and bleeds a tiny microscopic amount right onto those battered sphincters, your odds of transmitting HIV go up, up, up. So this, to quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, this is not the condom technology you're looking for. The galactic cap. Please don't give money to their Indiegogo campaign unless it's the Indiegogo away and try again campaign because this is not the solution. This is part of the problem. This attitude, this idea that putting the condom on the whole dick is to ruin sex for men. It doesn't ruin sex for men. You know what ruins sex? The whining and bitching and moaning and complaining and the refusal to reconcile yourself to condoms and make them your friend and to use them and to stop lying to yourself. The self-fulfilling prophecy involved when you say, well, I can't feel anything with a condom on is huge. A lot of people can't feel anything with a condom on because they've convinced themselves they can't feel anything with a condom on. And then the condom breaks and they don't fucking notice and they can't put those two things together. Right? The same guy. Talk about being able to hold two opposing viewpoints in your head at once. The same guy who five minutes ago was telling you he can't feel anything with a condom will tell you after the condom breaks inside you that he couldn't – he didn't realize because he didn't feel it. Those guys should be slapped with a box full of galactic caps. And now your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a 19-year-old straight guy. I don't have much experience with women. And it seems that any time a woman shows the smallest amount of interest to me, uh, I've become attached. Anytime like a girl flirts with me on like repeated occasions, I start to develop feelings for her, feelings that I know that she doesn't have. And then if it ever leads to anything physical, then I just become really attached. Uh, and then it doesn't, it doesn't turn out well for me because other, you know, the girl doesn't, never has feelings for me. Um, and so we do something physical and then I'm sad because I know she doesn't have feelings for me. So how do I be casual? How do I have a casual sexual uh, experience and not develop feelings for a girl? How do I like a girl and be interested in a girl and not be attached? It's a fine thing that you have feelings for the girls that you're attracted to. It's a fine thing that you begin to feel attached to someone that you've been physically intimate with. What you don't want to do is get carried away. What you want to do is be realistic. You're 19 fucking years old. The relationships you have now are unlikely to be lasting or lifelong relationships. It would be nice to have a girlfriend at some point. That'll come. So what you need to do when you begin to have these feelings that you know could be overwhelming, they could also be uh, off-putting. You know, nobody wants to feel like someone that they're casually dating is developing such intense feelings for them that they're under some sort of obligation or they're being put in a position where if they withdraw a little bit or they want to dial it back or they want to end it because it was just a one or two time thing, that their monsters somehow stomped on the feelings of some poor person and became instantly bonded with them like some goddamn duckling. So what you need to do is reason with yourself. You need to, when you, you know, girl expresses an interest, you, uh, w those feelings of attachment, those feelings of those crushes, that's your hopes for where this could possibly go. It's not there yet. You don't know that girl well enough to be there yet. You don't know that girl well enough to actually be attached to her. What's happening inside your head, what's happening inside your pants is 
you know, you're playing out in your imagination, your erotic imagination, your romantic imagination, the possibilities, the potential that's in this relationship by allowing yourself to believe that you're already there, that you already are attached, that you already have strong feelings. You are fucking up the possibility. You're fucking up the potential that's there in that relation, the possibility for something developing or growing over the long term. So you need to talk yourself now that you know that this is a pattern, now that you know that this is a problem. When you begin to have these feelings, you need to talk yourself off the fucking ledge. You need to say, I have these feelings, but they're not really about this girl because I really don't know her that well. I have these feelings that are about my desire to be in a relationship, my desire to love someone. And that those are good feelings, positive things. But I'm going to dial it back. I'm going to be cautious of my own heart. I don't want to get hurt again. And I'm going to be considerate of that other person's feelings. And I'm not going to spook them by being too demonstrative, uh, too clingy, too obviously attached I'm not going to round them up to girlfriend or great love interest early, too early in the relationship because it's going to scare them away and they can never then be that person. It's really the only way out. There's no magic formula here. There's no like acting like a dick or an unavailable dick. There's no the secret. There's no pickup artist rules. You just have to dial it back. You just have to say to yourself, oh, I have these feelings for this girl. They're premature. I don't really have these feelings for this girl. These are feelings inside me that I would like to pour all over someone when the right person comes along. So I'm going to make an effort, a conscious effort, to be a little bit more casual, to hold it back, to not tell her how I'm feeling. Because it's too soon to have these feelings and it's certainly too soon to share them because it's going to scare her off. And that isn't playing games, that isn't being manipulative, that is being... That is demonstrating you have a high emotional intelligence, a high emotional IQ. Takes time, takes practice. At 19, a lot of people are making the same mistake that you are making. So give yourself a break and in the future, talk yourself off that intensity of feelings ledge when you find yourself out there. Hi, Dan. This is a 29-year-old from Chicago, heterosexual. And me and my fiancé have a question for you. We love the uh, fuck-first sort of mentality, and we would love to implement that on our impending wedding day. However, we're not exactly sure how that would work because we don't want to see each other before the ceremony. So we were wondering if you had any advice on, on how that would work because we're feeling after the ceremony you kind of roll into pictures and the reception afterwards where we don't want to miss out on all of our friends and family being there and celebrating with them. But then we're also worried about being exhausted at the end of the night and not having enough energy to fully engage in in what we want to do. So um, any suggestions, I guess, would be helpful. I don't know what, what would help, but anything would be great. I tried to call you back because you're a podcast listener. You say you have to be a podcast listener to call the podcast. People want to accidentally call the podcast. And you really don't know what I'm going to tell you to do. You really, after listening to the podcast for however many months or years that you've been listening to the podcast, you don't know the easy and obvious solution to we want to fuck first on our wedding day, but we don't want to see each other. Blindfolds? Blindfolds? Blindfolds are pretty awesome. He can be in a room and put on a blindfold and you can back into that room, put on your own blindfold, 
grope around until you find and start actually groping each other and fuck the shit out of each other blindfold style. There's also hoods if you want to go scary S&M on the morning of your big wedding. There's also blacking out a room. You can put all the curtains up. You can put blackout curtains up. You can tape every crack and every crevice so you can't see each other. It's actually kind of fun and exciting to think about fucking when you can't see each other. And it is the obvious solution. And yes, on your wedding day, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen and gentlemen, ladies and ladies, you should fuck first because I guarantee you I've been there. You will be too exhausted at the end of that day to want to fuck. It's not just the food and the booze that you're not actually going to have very much of as you ping from relative to relative saying hello. You will be emotionally drained. Everyone you talk to is going to pull some energy out of your body. You're going to connect and smile and laugh with so many people. By the end of the day, you will not have the energy even to sit your ass down on your new spouse's face. So fuck first before the ceremony. Get it out of the way. If you don't want to see each other, blindfolds, hoods, blackout curtains. Peter Dan Savage. How do polyamorous people do it? How do they balance the conflicting responsibilities inherent in two or more primary relationships? I ask this because I've tried to be in something like a polyamorous relationship, only I was sleeping with just one person. My husband and I split up amicably several years ago, and we've been trying to do something unusual, something enlightened, trying to keep the needs of our son first and foremost in our lives. I guess you could call it our own kind of thoughtful uncoupling. He and I have continued to live in the same house for the past three years in order to provide our son the most stable environment possible, with me occupying the mother-in-law apartment over the garage. In the meantime, I had a serious relationship with another man for two years. My boyfriend even cleared the idea with my ex-husband before we commenced dating. For a long time, everybody was cool with this. We all hung out together sometimes. My boyfriend would join us for holidays like Christmas and Easter. It honestly freaked out many people around us who didn't really understand it. All parties concerned were very respectful, and it seemed to work until I began feeling like a rubber woman stretched between two households, married to two men, and feeling very stressed out. My romantic relationship ultimately crumbled because I was unable to give it the energy and time that it really required to flourish. I never wanted to have the kind of situation where my son was shuttling between two different houses. I wanted to do better. I wanted to be better. But now it seems like my option is either to separate our two houses and do divorce like everybody else on the planet with the kid paying the price or giving up on my romantic relationship until my son is out of the house, which won't be for another eight years. I really don't want to live an intimacy-free life for the next eight years. So my question is, how do polyamorous people do it? You're not polyamorous, so I don't see quite how poly and how poly people do it factor into your situation and your problem. Uh, it sounds like you haven't divorced. You're still married to your husband. You're not together. You're broken up. You've separated. You have separate domiciles very close together. Um, and your new relationship, your new romantic relationship crumbled, not under the pressures of sort of poly stuff, not under the pressures of being emotionally engaged and romantically engaged with two or more people at once, but under the pressures of divorce, under the pressures of uh, separation, under the pressures of family life and still being sort of tied to your ex, who still is your husband, I think, if I remember correctly, um, be because you have this child together and you are going to perforce have less time, emotional uh, and then romantic energy to expend on your new relationship because you have these obligations. You have this 
child that you are raising together and you will still be engaged as a parent and a partner of sorts to your husband, your ex-husband, your ex-romantic partner through your child. So it's not so much about poly. This is really about divorce. This is really about blended families. This is really about the limitations that someone dating someone who has a child and has an ex has to acknowledge and accept going into that romantic relationship. You're dating someone who has a child or children with an ex and they are co-parenting together in an amicable and admirable way, you have to accept that your partner, this person that you're interested in romantically, is going to have a little less time and a little less energy for you than they might if they were unencumbered, if they didn't have any children, if they didn't have an ex. And so, you know, I I wasn't there. I wasn't a witness to everything. You say that the relationship crumbled because you didn't have the emotional energy to, uh, to, to expend upon it. You say the relationship crumbled because you didn't have enough emotional energy to sort of lavish upon your current romantic partner because of your involvement with your ex and your child. And that isn't a bug. That is a feature to being a separated or divorced parent and co-parenting with your ex. I don't think you did anything wrong. I'm not sure the polys would be able to unlock this for you. Uh, when you talk to people who are poly, when you read about poly, when you see poly people on the TV running their mouths about themselves and their relationships, it does require a lot of focus. It seems to require a lot of meetings, a lot of unpacking, a lot of making sure everyone's on the same page. And so it does require extra effort. You take the effort of just one relationship, then you have two relationships. And in a way, there's actually more relationships because the person you're with has a relationship with the other person that you're with. And they have a kind of relationship that has to be processed and unpacked and feelings have to be dealt with and protected and la da 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 And it's complicated. But your complications weren't poly complications. They were divorce complications, co-parenting complications, and perhaps unrealistic expectation complications on the part of your most recent ex-romantic partner, the guy you were dating while you were co-parenting with your ex-husband. And finally, I really want to give you credit for how you and your – I'm still confused whether he's your ex-husband or you guys have stayed married in the interest of your child. I really want to credit you guys, both you guys, for how you've handled this, that you know, the, your marriage is over but you are keeping your kid uh, front and center and being adults about it and that your husband was able to uh, accept your new romantic partner and really treat him as a part of the family for the duration while he was a part of your family. Um, that speaks well to both of you. That speaks really well to your focus on your kid and your emotional maturity um, and your taste in men. That sometimes you can really judge somebody by uh, not the quality of the person that they're with, but also the quality of the people that they are no longer with. And if you were with a guy who could stick that dismount so well as you guys both got out of this marriage together, you obviously have really good taste in men. Hi, Dan. This is a straight male, 43 years old, living in Canada, and I have a question for that I hope you can help me with. I've never masturbated. I think it's perfectly normal uh, and should be done quite frequently. I just never have. I've had erotic thoughts, but it's never led to ejaculation. I've only rarely come through blowjobs, and basically the only time... I can uh, come as uh, straight vaginal intercourse. Basically, I don't know if I just have a deficit <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, semen production and I just, it just doesn't come out very often. I, I really don't know. So any uh, advice would be really appreciated. Thank you. According to the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior, the NSSHB, 
which was recently unpacked at 538 by Mona Chalabi, or Chalabi, I don't know how you pronounce her name. You're not that abnormal. She crunched the numbers on masturbation, and you're 43 years old, and 24% of men between the ages of 40 and 49, 24%, so they have not masturbated in the past year. They didn't ask men in the NSSHB study if they had never masturbated, but you're not alone, it would seem. There are plenty of men uh, in your age group, in your cohort, who don't masturbate. Fully a quarter, nearly a quarter, not fully a quarter, nearly a quarter of all men don't masturbate. Shockingly, uh, 18.5% of men between the ages of 18 and 24 told researchers that they have not masturbated in the past year, which I find kind of hard to believe. 36.5% of women between the ages of 18 and 24 told researchers they haven't masturbated in the past year, which I sadly find kind of credible based on my calls, based on the letters I get, based on anecdotal evidence, uh, which we are the champions of here at the Savage Lovecast as opposed to research and data, which they're the champions of at 538. Uh, Lots of women don't masturbate. This is a problem, as I have said many times before, because women uh, arrive at partnered sex never having made themselves come and then expect their brand new partner, often when women are young, an inept young man, to magically do for them what they have never done and cannot do for themselves, which is uh, to make them come. You need to be the expert on how you come before you get with somebody else, in my opinion. But that hasn't been an issue for you. You have never masturbated. You have you come during vaginal intercourse, caller. Uh, not necessarily a problem. It may not be about the amount of semen that you create. It could just be about your libido, and you may have a libido that is completely satiated by the amount of sex that you have, and you don't need to drain the swamp as regularly as other dudes do. But if you're happy and it's working for you, It works for you. There have been some studies that show, however, in males, a correlation between infrequent masturbation and prostate cancer, that there is something to flushing out those pipes, getting those carcinogens out of your tubes, out of your nuts, out of your crotch, uh, that helps prevent prostate cancer. Possibly it's a correlation, not causation, as I'm sure half of you are already emailing me to point out. But there is a strong correlation. So you may want to take up masturbation for your health, But if you don't, uh, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with you mentally or physically. Hi, I'm a 23-year-old straight female living in San Francisco. And I typically have very, or I believe in very traditional relationships. Um, But I started seeing this guy about a little over a month ago and everything was going great. He's really awesome. We get along really well. And I that we definitely have chemistry, but he has been a serial monogamous until now and wants to experiment with basically having an open relationship, which doesn't really jive with my standard protocol in relationships. So I was just wondering if you could help me sort of decide if I should test it out or should I, I don't know, should I just stick to my guns and kind of walk away from the whole thing? And if I do test it out, do you have any kind of advice for a first-time situation like this? The world is full of people who are married that never wanted to be married, but they fell in love with someone that marriage was important to. Or, you know, kinky, but never thought they were kinky or never really were into kink, but they fall in love with someone who's kinky and kind of grew into kink. Or in polyamorous sort of relationships because they happen to – despite being monogamous themselves or 
thinking of themselves as monogamous and believing that that was what they wanted because that's what the culture taught them to want. They fell in love with somebody who was poly or didn't want to have a monogamous relationship and they were willing to revisit uh, what they thought they wanted and grow and change. Should you do that for this guy? I don't know. You're 23 years old. How attached to him are you? How big a crush do you have on him? When you look at him, do you think he's worth revisiting all your values slash preconceptions about what it is that you want uh, and who it is that you are? And if he is, maybe you should date him and give the open thing a whirl. But if you're going to compromise on this, I think he should compromise too. That if you're essentially a monogamist or monogamy is what you thought you always wanted and was your default expectation, go into this relationship uh, on your terms initially, that you want a period of exclusivity so that you can build the foundation that's strong enough that when he dates somebody else or has sex with somebody else uh, with your consent, that it's not going to rock or shake your world, that you will be secure enough in the relationship at the point that that happens that you will be able to wrap your head around it, not meaning that he's not into you or not attracted to you or not in love with you or anything else. I think if someone who wants an open relationship ultimately in his life is dating somebody who had always wanted a closed relationship, that it's not too much to ask that the relationship be closed initially. And again, as I said to the previous caller, this is anecdote, not data, but it has been my experience in my long life that the successful open relationships that I have witnessed had a period of closed had a period of effortless monogamous behavior at the beginning where bonds were forged and foundations were laid and, and a certain degree of security was really firmly established before you started bringing in the potential chaos generator that is other people. So if you want to be with him, I think you should be open to openness. And if he wants to be with you, I think at least at the start, you should be open to closedness. Hi, Dan. I don't really know who else to talk to. Someone suggested I contact you, but I just found out that my stepmother could possibly be having an affair with, with someone else cheating on my dad. And I found out through an outside source who I've been told is actually kind of a wacky lady. I've met her once before, and she called me up and told me that um, she accidentally um, was listening to her boyfriend's voicemail, which doesn't really sound too accident to me, and had a message that she played for me that was from my stepmother that was very suggestive, saying that I love you and that she's alone. And that's pretty much all the information I have at this point. And I don't really know how to approach the situation. I don't think I should tell my sisters or my mother, because my dad always complains about everyone in our family talking with each other about issues before they reach him. And my sisters in particular don't really care for this woman very much, um, my stepmother, and I really am kind of the only of the three sisters that's actually been nice to her and actually given her a chance. So I think for my dad's privacy and to respect that, I will keep that a secret from the rest of my family, which is incredibly difficult. Um, but I, I really don't know how to approach the situation if I should try to contact her at all or if I should, should go straight to my dad and just tell him that I was presented with this information and I don't really know what to do uh, but other than tell him because it's a huge weight on my chest and I don't I don't know who else to talk to so if you could give me some advice on that that would be great but in the meanwhile I'm just going to keep thinking it over until I burst and tell someone <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do but I really appreciate your input 
So you say the person who played this message for you was wacky and unreliable? Um, that was that was my impression. Like my boyfriend and, and I met her like a couple years ago and we both kind of felt that way, but I've also heard that from my dad and mm-hmm. his wife. Uh-huh. So I don't really know if, you know, maybe she kind of put that in his head because I don't, I mean, I don't really know. The... And and how did she get a hold of this voicemail message again that uh, of your stepmother? She didn't want to tell me um, exactly how she did it over the, over text message. It really sounds a little sketchy how she did it. I, I think, I mean, it doesn't really sound like it's a um, voice, like a regular iPhone or like cell phone voicemail. It almost sounds like it's a house phone. And I have a feeling she probably just went into his house and was just being a snoop. And so, if this person is someone that you're, does this person know your dad, this wacky person? Uh, she does. I mean, I don't think they're really good friends, but they've definitely like done a lot of dinners together. And Why do you think she brought it to you instead of bringing it to your dad if she wanted to rat out your stepmother? Uh, I have no idea. I don't know if it was totally appropriate, but she also, she claimed she didn't know my dad's number or his wife's number. And I didn't really feel comfortable giving that information to her, especially if, you know, I wasn't totally convinced this was true. And I, and I still am not entirely convinced it's true, but um, she did email me the voicemail and it's, I mean, and, it and sounds it's, And it's your stepmother saying, we have fucked and I would like to fuck you again and I want your dick again? No, nothing. It didn't say that. No, it just says, it says, she calls him honey. She says, I love you. She says that she's alone and he can call her. Okay. I mean, it's, I know her, I know her flirtatious voice. It sounds like it, but still it's not enough. I'm not like totally convinced it's enough to like bring to anyone's attention. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of debating whether I should try to like possibly like be in the room while the two of them together and try to like see if I notice anything. I don't know. Okay. But what, just to try to, how long have you, how long have your uh, dad and stepmom been together? Like six years. Okay. Let's assume the worst. Let's just game it out. Your stepmom's having an affair. Let's just assume that that's what's happening, even though we have no definitive proof. And any high school student who's read Othello can tell you that running to somebody with a charge of infidelity can destroy a marriage and end a life potentially. Uh, and an innocent person can be harmed in the process. So uh, let's just assume that it's true. She's having an affair, but we have no proof, but it's true. She's having an affair. Uh, there are sometimes reasons why people have affairs that are legitimate. What if your father, forgive me, and we're going to talk about your father's genitals. What if your father hasn't fucked your stepmother in five years? What if your father isn't interested? I've been wondering if they were swingers. I mean, what if they're swingers? What if they're swingers? What if your father knows that, that she has other partners and doesn't care? What if they have a don't ask, don't tell agreement? What if when they got married, they were like, you know, we're older, We've been to this rodeo before. We don't want to let this kind of thing destroy a marriage. So if anything else ever happens, I just want to hear about it. All right. What if they have that kind of agreement? Well, I hear you, but I think the thing that's like, especially like concerning about this particular situation is this man is over my dad's house, like all the time. He's like one of his best friends. Like every time I I go and visit my dad, he's Uh just hanging out there. Uh So, I mean, it's just, even if it is like a don't ask, don't tell, like that's very, like close close to home. I mean, you literally live 
like 15 feet from my dad's front door. They're neighbors. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Okay. So your stepmom's having an affair with this guy, good friend of your dad's. The betrayals are coming fast and furious. It's not just his wife betraying him. But his friend, you know, who he extends his hospitality to, who's over at his house a lot. So the betrayals are coming fast and furious. Let's say the affair winds down and it ends and your father never finds out about it, which is often what happens. Like an affair winds down and it ends. Uh, nobody gets caught. The person who maybe had the affair regrets it, looks back on it with some remorse, recommits to the relationship with their spouse and never does it again. But the relationship, you know, with all of its good parts, all the things that are good and loving about it survives only because the cheated on partner never found out about it. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot, right? That happens in a lot of relationships. There are sometimes people who find out about affairs because the spouse confesses because feels they have to be honest. They have to tell. It's the only way to, uh, you know, revive their sense of themselves as moral beings. So they confess all. And the spouse, a couple years later, after therapy, says, I wish you'd never told me. Mm-hmm. That happens too. This yeah. is a terrible burden that's been placed on you by this shitbag. Right? Mm-hmm. Who, it's really none of her business what's going on in your father's marriage. And it's kind of none of your business either. The awkwardness for you is if it all does come out and you didn't say anything and additionally it comes out that you knew or could have known or suspected because of this idiot voicemail that you were forced to listen to by this idiot busybody snoop that could really fuck up your relationship with your dad right to whom you you if owe, i didn't tell him if yeah. you didn't tell him to whom you owe some sort of higher loyalty he's your father she's your stepmother but you know we can game all this out endlessly and i just don't think that it's your place to rush in there and tell. I don't think it's your place to insert yourself into the emotional or sexual dynamics of your father's second marriage or third marriage or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And if it does come out later and your father finds out that you could have known or might have suspected, all you have to say is there was nothing definitive on that call that was played for me. I, you know, it, it seemed suspicious, but I didn't want to destroy your relationship over a suspicion. Yeah. And dad, here's a copy of Othello. Go read it. Yeah. Baseless, baseless suspicions destroy marriages. When you pour poison in someone's ear like that, they can destroy a marriage absent an infidelity. Maybe it was just an emotional infidelity. Maybe they're just emotionally really close. Maybe they flirt and they look at each other and say, you know, if I weren't married, I would be to- we would totally be fucking. But you know what? I'm married and we're not going to fuck. And sometimes the like Hans and love you and hanging out gets out of hand, but we're not fucking. How is your stepmother going to prove that they weren't fucking if that's what's going on? There's just too many fucked up game outable scenarios here where the disclosure is actually potentially more damaging. You're disclosing what you know, more damaging than the affair. If there is indeed an affair going on and there Mm -hmm. might not be an affair going on. Yeah. That's kind of where I've been heading at this point. I mean, my immediate reaction was to like talk to my family, like my sisters and my mom, but I'm realizing that that's not really fair to my dad because, you know, it's something really private. He, and he, he always complains about our family and that we always talk about things with each other, like to each other, like about him. Uh-huh. 
So I know that that, that would really upset him. So for his res- to respect his privacy, I'm going to have to just keep this to myself, which is tricky. But why, why is it tricky? Just stuff it down the fucking memory hole. Sometimes when you snoop, yeah. sometimes when you snoop or someone shares with you what they found snooping, uh, you just have to will yourself not to know what you do know. It's just going to be hard to like be around my stepmom. I just, I'm like at least in the near future until I can like really try to figure out what's going on. One more question: Why do you why do you suspect they might be swingers? Um, cause I've had that conversation with my dad about um how I don't necessarily believe that there is such thing as a monogamous relationship and it's like inevitable for you to, to, to find love with someone else and um, be attracted to other people. And he kind of like the way he responded to that, it was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I can, I can kind of see what you're saying, you know? So I sensed that maybe even if he was, or if he wasn't like, it would be something he might be interested in because mm-hmm. I know my dad, he, I mean, he really loves women. So <laughs> it's kind of hard for me to imagine him being with one person and being okay with that. You know, who knows? Maybe when you're older, you kind of just settle and you just agree with that. Maybe, but, maybe there's a voicemail um, message out there somewhere. That's your dad talking to the woman he's cheating on your stepmom with. Maybe they're both yeah, cheating on each very other. Very possible. Yeah. And maybe you should respect their privacy and respect their marriage. And marriages cannot mm-hmm. survive depositions and full disclosure and complete honesty at all times. Sometimes you have to – sometimes the only way a marriage survives is if you don't find something out. And you want that marriage to yeah. survive. Sometimes not knowing something is the only way you can stay with someone. Unfortunately, this dingbat involved you in something that you don't need to be involved in. And I and I my advice to you would be to shut up and leave it alone and stay out of it. Yeah. Unless and like what if what if like more evidence surfaces? If more evidence surfaces, if your stepmother is putting your father at risk uh physically, emotionally, if she's betraying him in ways where he is being, you know, he's the laughing stock of the world and everyone on earth but him knows, you should clue him in. You should go talk to him and tell him. But I would never approach her first in that situation. No. No, stay the fuck out of it. You could approach her to say, you know what? It's getting out there. And I've known for a while and I haven't said anything to my dad because I don't want to see my dad get hurt. And I don't know what your private thing is. I don't know if you guys are open or monogamous or swingers or whatever. But everybody else thinks that you you guys are monogamous because that's what people think about married people. And so you're scandalizing people and eventually someone's going to go to my dad and say something. Mm-hmm. If more comes out, if it becomes just too obvious and undeniable that this is going on, you could approach her. But for right now, with just that fucking phone call and that busybody dingbat snoop, yeah, stay out of it. Okay. Good luck. I'm sorry. It's a burden. It's a burden. Yeah. No, it's good to it's good to hear that advice. I mean, I was doing some research, and everyone said different things on like forums online and. Just, I mean, not that your answer is necessarily the right answer, but... No, no, no. My answer is always the right answer. <laughs> and, and this isn't an advice program. This is a binding arbitration show, so you have to do what I tell you to do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Savage. Okay. Yeah, whatever. Let me get off the phone now. It was great talking to you. Good luck, and I'm really sorry that you were put in this position. Uh, thank you. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old gay man from the Midwest, um, and I just have a question about past relationships 
of a sort. Like many in the Midwest, I grew up a very conservative evangelical Christian. And so when I was 13 or 14 and discovered that all my friends were liking girls, I was like, oh, I like penises. <laughs> um, I tried for many years to convince myself that I was straight. Went to a conservative Christian college in the Midwest and dated, didn't date all through high school, but dated um, a couple of people, a couple of women um, in college. And uh, my first relationship lasted for a little over a year, you know, ended amicably. We were both happy, you know, whatever. But my second relationship ended when I finally came around to the realization that I was gay and that wasn't going to change and that I had to find some way to live my life with that. Um, and so we broke up at that point. Um, it was about a year ago now. And I've moved on with my life. I'm learning how to, how to live um, as a gay man and <laughs> um, having grown up in this situation. And, but my question is, this girl that I was dating cared a lot about me. Um, and, you know, I, I really feel like in the process of, you know, coming out to her and, and ending that relationship that I really hurt her. Um, but I'm wondering, part of me feels like, like I need to go back and, and apologize to her, you know, tell her, you know, I'm sorry for, sorry for leading you on and telling you all these things that, well, I wasn't really being true to myself. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've heard you tell lots of other people, you know, you just need to move on and you just need to let them have their space. And so I was just kind of wondering, should I go back and tell this girl, you know, Hey, sorry for being an idiot. Sorry for lying to you um, and to myself and to others. Or do you think at this point it's just best just to, just to leave it alone and let it go? This is a dilemma that a lot of young gay people find themselves in when they come out. You know, we're sort of forced to be straight. A lot of us are convinced by our families, our conservative families, uh, our faith traditions, uh, that the only moral choice that we can make if we are same-sex attracted, as they like to say, is to fake being straight, which requires finding a woman if you're a gay closeted man and lying to her successfully all your life. And now, after coming out, you have another moral dilemma. How do you make amends and should you make amends? And I really think that what you need is a moralist, maybe, and a philosopher. And we happen to have one in the studio with us today, John Corvino, a.k.a. the gay moralist. He's a philosophy professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, the author of What's Wrong with Homosexuality and other books. He's got a YouTube channel that's an excellent resource, uh, particularly for young people who are coming out to their families. If your families have objections to same-sex relationships or gay marriage, send them to John's YouTube channel where they can watch his videos about marriage, about gay relationships, and what's not wrong with them. That YouTube channel, John's just hit one million views. And John agreed to demean himself this afternoon by stopping <laughs> by the Savage Love Couch and taking a few questions with me. Uh, what were you thinking? It's a pleasure to be here, John. <laughs> Always a pleasure. It's a pleasure to see you. You're one of those people that I wish uh, lived where I lived so I could see you more often and we could talk more often. Um, and if the only way I can see you and talk to you is to invite you on the show to demean yourself by taking questions from I'm my listeners. I'm happy to demean myself. So what would you tell this guy? Well, the first thing I would say to him is um, good luck to you and, and all the best to you as you're going through the coming out process. You know, I think a lot of people forget uh, when, when, when they think about all the progress we've made as a society that, you know, when individuals are going through this at, at whatever age, it's, it's a challenging thing. So, so good for you for, for taking that step. Um, but the other thing I would say is in terms of apologies, I mean, apologies should be primarily about the other person and that person's feelings. And you know her. Uh, you know what she's like. You know her personality. You know what's likely to 
make her feel better. You know what's likely to, to, to bend her out of shape perhaps. So, um, so you're in the best position, I think, to figure out what it is you need to do to help her achieve some closure. Uh, I would generally suggest, I mean, and again, this, uh, this coming from the perspective of an outsider, I would generally suggest, you know, starting with a, a letter or an email or saying, look, there's just something I want to say. Uh, I care a lot about you. Uh, you, you know, you were an important person in my life and that was a really hard time for me. And, you know, this is why I was doing that. I was lying to myself and therefore I was lying to, to you. And I feel bad about that and that was wrong and I'm sorry. Um, and then, you know, invite her for further dialogue. If she wants to go out to lunch, she wants to, to go for coffee, or if she wants to leave it alone and not talk to you anymore, that's a possibility too. Was there anyone you had to apologize to after you came out? Uh, no, I, 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 I'm one of those gold star gays. I never dated anyone. I'm sure there were plenty of people I had to apologize to, but not about that. Are you a platinum gay? Am I a pla- What's a platinum gay? Uh, a platinum gay is a gold star gay, which is someone who's uh, a gay man who's never had sex with a woman, but also was a cesarean section birth. So you've never been anywhere in the vaginal I am not canal, a platinum not even gay. once. Huh? I am not a platinum gay. Oh, no. That's too bad. Sorry. Terry's I'm- platinum. Oh, wow. Yeah. He seems platinum. Yeah, he does. In every <laughs> way. Occasionally his hair is platinum too. Right. That's um, true. This is, a, this is something that, you know, the religious right, and you have a lot of interactions with the religious right. You toured for years with Glenn Stanton from Focus on the Family doing debates about gay marriage, gay relationships. You're one of the people out there in the field fighting the fight, engaging uh, these people in argument. And you were able to engage people in argument that I couldn't because they would just make me spitting mad. But you would tour with Glenn Stanton and they, what they tell people to do is to create these kind of victims. What they want gay men to do, the Catholics say be celibate, but the evangelical Protestants say that we should fake it, that we should They probably wouldn't put it in those terms. to be straight. Right. Uh, we should all be uh, Ted Haggard and Marcus Bachman when we grow up. And find some idiot woman and lie to her. And, you know, there's a whole organizations dedicated to healing the wounds that these women uh, – that are inflicted on these women after their husbands come out in middle age or or in their thirties, after they have a couple of children, the straight spouse support network. What would you say to religious conservatives? I I mean, often this gets framed as look at what gay men are doing. Look what this gay guy did to this girl. Gay men are awful. Well, gay men are doing this under duress and at the direction of their faith leaders. What would you say to these faith leaders about all these, this collateral damage when they try to shove gay people back into the closet, men and women who marry gay and lesbian People who then come out of the closet and inflict tremendous emotional trauma upon them. Well, one thing I would say is if they're really concerned about family values, we're not doing families any favor by pressuring people into situations that they're clearly not suited for. We're not doing them any favors. We're not doing their wives or, or husbands that they marry any favors. We're not doing their children any favors. And, you know, we'd have fewer such situations of, of family breakdown for this reason uh, if people would just acknowledge that. And people were free to come out. And people were free to come out. I, in American Savage, my latest book, which is sitting right there on the table. Sitting right there on the table. Uh, there's a chapter about gay parenting, because I happen to be a gay parent, where I walk people through the fact that most gay parents are not created by surrogacy or adoption. Most gay parents are created by the closet. Right. And by religious communities that convince them that they have to marry and have children. The states with the highest percentage per capita of same-sex couples parenting, Mississippi, Mm-hmm. Bible Belt states because mm. people were in opposite sex relationships that they were hustled into early in life by their faith leaders, broke up, found same sex partners they should have been with all along, and now are parenting the children from their previous heterosexual relationships. Tony Perkins and religious conservatives create more gay parents than all the gay advocacy groups and all the gay parenting orgs and all the gay memoirs about becoming parents could ever possibly hope to create. If they're against gay people parenting, they should be encouraging gay people to come out, come out early. And not marry and not lead women or men on. Amen. 
But they don't. They don't. Why not? Uh, slow learning curve. I don't. I don't you know. Spend a lot of time, <laughs> you spend a lot of time with these people. I don't. Look, I, look. I think that there is a lot of denial. Have you um, talked to Glenn Stanton about this particular subject? Um, it's been a while since I've talked to Glenn Stanton. I, you know, f- uh, after Maggie and I did the book together, Maggie Gallagher and I did the book debating same-sex marriage. We did a lot of debates. She continues to believe that while this is a difficult choice for people who are same-sex attracted, um, that. You know, for some, it, it's a reasonable choice. She thinks that they should be honest with their their sp- potential spouses or partners, uh, but that you know, the, if 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 everybody's on board and willing to try it, she she would rather see that than see them in same sex relationships. Do they really think there's a lot of women out there who are like, yes, the gay husband, pick me, pick me, gay guy. That's what I want. Probably not a lot, but I'll certainly never get some. My pussy eating, but my hair will look awesome <laughs> everywhere I go. I will never leave the house in clashing colors. I will never have an orgasm ever again in my life, but hey, I'll look fabulous. Maybe that's what your caller needs to apologize to her for. Her hair doesn't look good anymore, and she's just, <laughs> it's 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 tragic. It's sad. No, I it look. Um, one hopes that uh, as society has been changing, that they'll realize the damage they've been doing. But uh, again, it's a slow learning curve, and it's a that's a real hope. It's a real hope. Hope springs eternal. Hi, Dan. This is a 20-year-old college student in Maryland. The quandary that I have is with my roommate. We've been friends for about three years, living together for two, and she has herpes. And she's in a relationship with another, a mutual friend um, of ours who I interact with daily. Um, I'm in a couple of clubs with him, and she has not disclose this information to him. We've been dating for about a year and a half, and I've brought it up a couple of times, um, asking her if she's going to disclose it to him, and she says that, you know, it's not a big deal, and he doesn't really need to know about it. But, you know, as I get closer in my friendship with him, I constantly feel guilty that I have this piece of information that I'm not sharing with him. So my question to you is, do I have any sort of responsibility to my roommate's boyfriend to disclose this information? I've already confronted her about it, and she is in no way trying to disclose the information to him. So um, I'm just trying to ask you what I should do to get rid of this guilt and kind of fulfill my social responsibility if I have any, or whether I should just put the fuck out of the situation. So here we have two conflicting sort of uh, moral imperatives, uh, you know, to protect someone from harm. She's friends with this guy, friends with the boyfriend. Uh, she knows this thing. And, and then, you know, the moral imperative to disclose, the moral imperative for someone to have uh, the right to informed consent. And these are all clashing here. And then you throw herpes, you know, herpes is the issue, herpes into the mix. Not that – really not that big a deal. A lot of people are exposed to herpes and don't even know it. I had one outbreak, never had another outbreak again in their life. It isn't that big a deal but it tends to be a big deal to people when they get infected sure, or when they were misled or that information wasn't given to them in advance. They weren't able to opt into the risk that they were taking. So here's this girl. You're the philosopher. You're the moralist. She knows that this guy, a friend of hers, is sleeping with another friend of hers who has herpes who isn't disclosing. What is she obligated to do in that situation morally, ethically? So to the extent that there are clashing moral imperatives here, I think the uh, – it's not her um, moral obligation to tell. It's the the friends, the roommates rather, uh, moral obligation to disclose and 
you know, also some obligation on the part of the boyfriend to initiate that conversation as well, because all of us who are sexually active, um, you know, as you point out, are, are, are possibly at one point or another exposed to herpes. Most people who have herpes, herpes don't realize that they have herpes. Um, so my, my gut on this tells me um, absolutely not that, the, that she should not uh, disclose on behalf of her roommate for a couple of reasons. One is because she – um, you know, doesn't know other factors in the situation, doesn't know, for example, you know, what um, conversations they may have had beyond this about disclosure, doesn't know uh, what sexual, uh, sexually transmitted uh, infections that he might be carrying. Well, what if she does know? She says she's had a couple of conversations with her roommate about this issue. Okay. Well, so what if she does know that, even, even, that he's even, initiated these conversations and, and she's lying to and him? And she's lying to him. She's lying to him. Okay. So then I would ask, well, how does she know this? Does she know this on the basis of a confidential conversation with her roommate? Because you know, presumably her roommate told her this in confidence. May not have, but mm-hmm. let, let, let's assume that she did. Once you start breaking confidences like that, you then become uh, a person that other people can't trust with secrets. When you become that person, you are no longer in the position that she is currently in, which is a position where she can – Plead with her roommate. Uh, what about breaking try- faith with her friend? Because my night, the nightmare scenario for her, for her is her friend, this guy that she's getting closer to, and who knows? Maybe she wants to get in his pants. Maybe that's part of what's maybe. driving this desire to disclose. But setting that aside, and that's purely speculation. Uh, I don't think there's anything in the cult to really indicate that. So withdrawn, Your Honor. Um, <laughs> now that you've you've put it before, the she's jury. getting closer to this guy. They're becoming really good friends. The guy gets comes down with herpes, breaks up with his girlfriend. It comes out in the like drama and the fight about it that she knew that she knew that his girlfriend had herpes, her mutual, their mutual friend, her old friend had herpes and she didn't warn him and didn't tell him. And he comes to her and says, why didn't you say something? Why did you let me, why didn't you, why didn't you protect me as a friend in this situation? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you say something? And I think that her answer at that point would have to be, it wasn't my information to give. Mm -hmm. What would you say? I don't know. You don't know. I want to, you know, I want to raise the stakes to HIV. If I had a friend who was sleeping with another friend who was positive, uh, and I knew that per- I knew that they were not being safe, and on top of that, I knew that the pause guy was not uh, taking his meds and couldn't right. So then couldn't, couldn't throw on the table that he had an undetectable viral load, and so was essentially not infectious for HIV, which is what we know now. But undetectable viral loads, I would feel morally obligated to. To intervene, I would feel morally obligated to my other friend to say something. And I would have first browbeat my pause friend about disclosure. Right. But I would also at some point say, if you're not going to tell him, I'm going to tell him. Right. Well, I mean, one thing is to, to say to the roommate, look, here, here's where things are now. I'm not happy with the way you're proceeding with this. I really think you should tell him. It bothers me that you're not. If you're not going to tell him, I'm going to tell him, at least to take that kind of responsibility rather than go behind the roommate's back. But, you know, when you raise the stakes to HIV, there we're talking about something that at least traditionally was potentially life-threatening. Now, of course, you know, there are many things we can do today so that it's less likely to be so. But there's a big difference between HIV and herpes. Still, five, I think five 8,000 people a year in the United States die yeah, so from it's, HIV infection. So, still so, potentially life-threatening. Right. So big difference from herpes. It is a big difference. Okay. So am I – does that big difference – Make a difference, Free? yeah. No, well, look. Um, as you said, there are different factors uh, here. One is the factor of wanting to protect this friend and warn this friend about a potential danger. The other is protecting confidences. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, you know, secrets that you're told. And again, 
The reason she is currently in a position to be able to say to her friend, hey, what you're doing here is wrong. You ought to disclose. You're, you're exposing him to this. He's a good guy. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this to anyone. The reason she's able to do that is because presumably her friend trusted her enough, her roommate trusted her enough to share this information. And now what she's but saying the, is – But the, 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 the monkey wrench is her friend trusts her. Like we all implicitly trust our friends right. to give us a heads up if we're in danger or if somebody's being shitty to us and we don't know it. You rely on your friend. You trust them to nut to elbow you in the ribs and say, hey, I got to tell you. And that's – she's in this position because of these conflicting sort of obligations, obligation to protect a friend, obligation not to violate a confidence from another friend – and it put, and that you know maybe the advice is go to your friend who has herpes and say you have to tell him if you don't tell him I'm going to have to tell him because I can't sit with this forever. Yeah, I would say if she's you going to tell him, she needs she, she she needs to start with that you know, to you know to tell her roommate first before she so to you know to put it on the line and give her the option. I mean, maybe it's my background. As you know, I was planning on becoming a priest. I I, I consider you know things told in confidence like that. You know, confidences are pretty strict. Except in cases where a person's life is threatened, but but again, many people are exposed to herpes without even realizing that, without the partners right. even realizing that they carry. Herpes. Which is something that I constantly wrestle with too when I think about it. That when it comes to herpes, it's HPV, so sure. common that I don't think you have to wear a scarlet H as you go through life, necessarily disclosing that you at one point had HPV. A lot of people have it; they clear it. Um, it's not that big a deal if you're getting vaccinated, as you all should. If you have children, and you have children. And they're getting vaccinated as they should. I don't think you need to, you know, run through the town square ringing a bell saying I have HPV. But it's a it's a deeply shitty thing to do. Yeah, and, oh, and I agree with that. Let's 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 agree that the the roommate ought to disclose to the boyfriend. No question about that. And then I, in these situations, I always think, you know, part of what I think is preventing her from laying down the law, like you tell him or I'm going to tell him or just telling him, is fear of losing the friendship of that person, of mm-hmm. her girlfriend. And I always look at those relationships and say, that's a friendship that you should be willing to sacrifice on the altar of doing the right thing. I wouldn't want a friend. And do you think who she sh- that way? You think she should keep going around warning any other potential sex partners of this person, or only people <laughs> that she happens to be friendly with? Well, I mean, the think, philosophy for right? No, right? look, I mean, but these are the implications of this. Right. I mean, if you say, well, you know, you've got to protect people from harm. Well, yeah, okay, but now anybody You're obligated to protect your friends from harm. I think that's where they're the obligations of friendship. That's what I started with. Not she's obligated to warn everyone on earth that this mm-hmm. girl has herpes. She doesn't have to get the herpes tattooed on her forehead one night if she passes out drunk. Right. But she's in this position. She has a friend that is sleeping with a friend. One friend is withholding information from the other that's potentially life-altering, if not life-threatening, because herpes is not life-threatening. Right. And for most people, it's not a big deal at all. But that guy has a right to informed consent. And I, he's being deprived of the right to exercise his informed consent. That is true. We agree on that. It is a dilemma. It is a dilemma. So what – your takeaway for the – if you had to tell this caller what to do in tw- in 20 words. Well, one thing I would say, you know, you, you, you threw this out there. Um, if any of this is motivated by her own interest in the, the boyfriend, she needs to be honest with herself about that. So – but, I, you know, I would say, look, uh, if you are going to disclose and, – and I'm not recommending that, uh, then you need to talk to the roommate first and say, look, I'm, I'm just not comfortable. And, th- and realize that that – um, means you probably need a new roommate now too because right. that's, that, that relationship is likely about to fall apart. That would be my advice. Right. Go to the roommate, say, I can't deal with this anymore. I can't lie like this by omission for you anymore. You have to tell him or I'm going to tell him. Yeah, but I, st- I still have the kind of gut feeling if this was something that was told specifically in confidence, then she should keep her mouth shut. 
would that apply if we were talking about HIV and gay men in the early 90s or late 80s when it was still a death sentence? That would be different. In complete confidence I told somebody I had HIV and I was fucking – You know, confidence – I mean, there are, there are times where you break a confidence and life threats are, are certainly among them. Hi, Dan. 21-year-old gay male here in Detroit, Michigan. My question isn't a sex question, but I'm sure you will be able to offer some advice or encouragement. As of right now, Michigan is going through the battle for marriage equality. We already won a trial, but our gross governor and attorney general has filed an appeal. And now a coalition of 200 black pastors all over Michigan has teamed up with a church called First Baptist World Changers International Ministries, a church in Detroit, to fight against marriage equality. They have worked with attorneys in Michigan to file briefs for the appeal and have marched every day during the trial with anti-gay signs. They even got lots of news coverage claiming to work for the better of Detroit and its black communities. And that marriage equality will be breaking the backbone of our society. There are way more pressing issues our city needs to be concerned about. That's what makes this church's crusade so disgusting. Imagine if this group of pastors banded together to fight violent crime, home invasion, corporate, local politicians, unproductive public school systems. There's so many things that's wrong here. They could be doing so many good things with their time and resources, but instead this church decides to lead a crusade against civil rights. I wanted to plan a friends and family protest, but none of my family and friends are very supportive. They're all either very apathetic to the issue or flat out against equality. The few friends I do have all gave excuses. I wanted to do something to let people out there know that this church doesn't speak for everyone in this city and that there are people who care about marriage equality here. We're just too busy tackling other more important issues in the city to deal with it head on. But it still doesn't stop this church's evil crusade to target a weak, pretty much defenseless target. I plan on doing solo protests outside the church on random times and days throughout the next few weeks and making small leaflets to distribute throughout the, the church's surrounding neighborhood to let people know about the terrible, misguided things the church is doing. But will that be enough? What do you think? Before we get to the particulars of this uh, guy's question, let's talk about Maggie Gallagher. Okay. You wrote the book Debating Same-Sex Marriage uh, with Maggie. Um, it was an argument back and forth. It was terrific. Absolutely terrific. Thank you. Um, I especially loved your part because <laughs> you ground Maggie to a fine powder and blew her away. But your friends, uh, you say, are you still friends? Are you still in touch with Maggie Gallagher? Yes, who was the touch. founder of the National Organization for Marriage. It's first president. She's an anti-gay marriage activist for many years. Um I think kind of a demagogue uh, and kind of a nutcase. She, ha she has her moments of demagoguery. Projecting uh, her issues around single parenting and uh, you know fatherless children onto gay people. They're losing. Yes. You debated Maggie Gallagher in the book. I debated Brian Brown, the current head of National Organization of Marriage, in my dining room, much to my husband's consternation. Um, when he was leaving at the end of it, uh, at the end of that debate, uh, Mark Oppenheimer from the New York Times asked us each to answer the question, who's winning? And he said, we're winning. Hmm. And since then, they've been losing everything. Lost the Supreme Court, 19 states now, uh, rulings of marriage equality. I I'm legally married at Washington State now. I wasn't when Brian Brown came to dinner. Um, they're losing. What should our course of action be now like these 200 pastors this guy talks about who are basically having this fit as they lose do we need to push and confront as as hard as we were pushing and confronting when we were losing when every time it went onto the ballot we lost um when every time it went up before a state supreme court as it did in washington state we lost we really had to fight 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 hard 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 now that we're really winning 
can we give these can we ignore these people for the ineffectual latecomers dead enders that they are or is it the best idea for this guy to get out and confront them we certainly can't ignore them um, so you know whether it's the best idea for him to get out and confront them I'll, I'll get to in a moment but look we certainly can't ignore them because winning can mean a lot of different things it's one thing for 19 states and and, and sooner or later 50 states I mean Maggie has said this that we are in the all 50 states phase whether we like it or not um, we you and I obviously like it she does not uh, I get. I didn't. Answer, right, right, I, didn't get, right, right. I didn't get to ask my question the way I wanted to. Like right. I was trying to bring it back to Maggie and your relationship yeah, yeah. with Maggie. Do you guys talk about this anymore? You're like, you know what? You want it's over. It's done. Let's talk about. The you cops. know, we we have it. Maggie is sort of in a kind of semi retirement, and I've been busy with a, a lot of stuff um, uh, with with my day job as a philosophy professor. So we we haven't seen each other in a while. You know, we we exchange emails from time to time. Um, but look, Maggie still believes what she believed before. She just recognizes that to the extent that they're going to win any converts on this issue, it's not going to be through political action anymore. They, they've lost the political battle. She knows that. I assume Brian Brown must know it even though he may not admit it in public. Um, He's getting paid handsomely a, a salary. Right. So Enormous it, it, salary not to know it. Not to know. Well, in, in any case, so, so they know that they've lost this. But look, there's more, for, more to it for them and there should also be more to it for us. It's one thing for the state to let people marry. It's another thing for their friends and family to show up at their wedding and be happy for them. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that these pastors are telling the people in the pews that there is something sick, unnatural, wrong, immoral about um, same-sex relationships, even when the stay is lifted in Michigan, you know, we were allowed to like get married for like five minutes in Michigan and then they put in a, a stay. Even when the stay is lifted in Michigan – um, there's still going to be a lot of damage done by the work of churches like that and, mm-hmm. and, and, and of other people who keep spreading these, these lies about our love, our, our families, our relationships. So yes, it's important for us to confront that. It's important for us to keep working on that because it does real damage to people, including young people like the caller. Um, now, as far as what he should do and how he should do it, uh, you know, one reaction I had to this is that somebody's got to be the fat penguin. You know, the fat penguin is the one who jumps in and breaks the ice first and all the other penguins follow. You know, they're all sort of looking around until finally the fat penguin breaks the ice. Some, I'm not familiar with these penguin rituals. Well, yeah, right, right. So, you know, there's a, somebody's got to be the first one to break the ice and then then everyone else follows. Maybe if he starts, um, the friends who he says have, you know, valid reasons for not wanting to join in will say, well, look, I want to I stand with him. I don't want him to stand alone. They'll start joining in. Uh, you know, certainly, I mean, I, I live in Detroit. In Detroit and in Michigan, there are organizations. Uh, the paper Between the Lines, PrideSource.com, you know, could cover something like this, you know, help get him more support. Um, but the main thing is that however we decide is the best strategy for confronting this, it needs to be confronted. Would it need to be confronted if these pastors weren't agitating to sustain the ban on same-sex marriage in Michigan, if they weren't arguing that their private religious beliefs should have the force of law and that gay people shouldn't be allowed to marry because they believe it's biblically or religiously impermissible. But if they were just saying, here in our churches, we're having a campaign, we think it's wrong, we don't want people to do it, but we recognize that it's the law and people can do it, we're not going to try to change the law, would we still need to go and confront? Because then it gets in this argument about whether you're you know, challenging people based on their privately held, sincerely held religious beliefs, if they're not trying to give them force of law, if they're not trying to enact any public policy or change or warp or shape public policy or perpetuate an injustice, should he protest them? Look, it would certainly be a step in the right direction if they didn't try to give their private beliefs the force of law in this case. However, those private beliefs 
expressed in the pulpit still can do a lot of damage, as you know. Absolutely. You, know, you, you get calls all the time. I get emails all the time through my website from you know young people who you are hearing this Catholic. stuff. I was raised we Catholic. We were both raised Catholic. I, I actually had a very good experience of the Catholic Church, you know, even during my coming out process. But not everybody does have a good experience of religion during their coming out process. And yeah, it still needs to be confronted. But then it's a different ballgame. Then, then at least they're not uh, you know, trying to impose their private religious beliefs in the public square in a way that violates other people's religious freedom. Because for years I would say to religious conservatives when they'd argue with me, like if you want to talk me out of sucking my husband's cock, knock yourselves out. Good luck with that. Like blah, blah, blah. I, I will even – I will listen to you as you try to talk me out of sucking Terry off. Uh, it's not going to work. Go for it. If you want to argue with politicians about making it illegal for me to suck Terry's cock, then we have a fight. If you want to, you know, you believe I should be discriminated against, if I want to serve in the military, if I want to marry, if I want to buy a house, if I want to have a job, sure. then it's a fight. Right. But if you think that, you know, Jesus is going to have a big sad if I suck this dick and you want to talk to me about that, that's actually kind of funny. Like, go it's for it. It's funny to you. It's not funny to the 13 or 14 year old who realizes he's attracted to people of the same sex or she's attracted to, to, to girls and, and, and that, you know, there's, they think there's something sick wrong. They think that Satan has somehow infected them. They, I mean, it's a lot of damage that, that this kind of stuff does. Do you think there's a way out for faith communities, a way out of the homophobia? Just as they once, like they dug their way out of racism. Any honest person who looks at the history of slavery in the United States has to acknowledge that the slave owners in the South had the Bible on their side and they used it. And now you tell people that you know slavery is not condemned in the Bible and that people leaned on the Bible to defend slavery and they can't believe it. They, they, they don't believe it. You talk to religious people, pretty well-educated religious people, and they will argue with you that that is just not the case. And then you go to the original source and you throw it in their faces and they're shocked. Are we going to get there on homosexuality? Are they going to – are we going to have a great forgetting about the homo, institutionalized homophobia in so many faiths as we move on culturally? Or is there just no getting past this because of the clobber passages in the Bible? I think the biblical case for slavery is stronger than the biblical case against homosexuality. So if we could get past the slavery stuff, we should be able to get past this. Now, should be and will are two different things. Uh, I'm not optimistic that in my lifetime – the Catholic Church, for example, say that stuff we said about homosexuality, never mind, you know, never, not really. Um, but look, we've already seen even at the level of the Catholic Church a certain change in tone, uh, you know, the more – the love the sinner, let's try to emphasize the love part more and, and, and the sinner part less. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that there can be progress. God hates fags, now with hugs. Now with hugs. But again, I mean, as you pointed out, uh, there was a big shift on the slavery issue. Uh, there could be more of a shift on this issue. I don't know if we're going to see it, though. I, I, I don't think I we're going to see I it. Because I think the slavery issue, uh, although a lot of you know American racism is bound up with, I think, sexual paranoia, the same-sex issue is just – or the you know the gay issue, homosexuality, is just so bound up with sex and sexual expression. And so much of Christianity and Islam and Judaism is about regulating sexual expression. And stigmatizing it. And I just don't know how you unscramble those eggs and we're so in the mix. You know, you have a church that still believes that masturbation is an intrinsically morally disordered act. The church, the Catholic church uses the same words and phrases to, to condemn masturbation that it uses to condemn homosexuality. Or contraception. I just don't see them getting there. No, I, well, I, look, I, I'm not denying that this is a, a long, long road and that we're probably not going to live to see it. 
well, maybe you and I will be the first gay men who lived for 500 years. And like if Galileo had lived for 500 years, he would have been around for the <laughs> right. apology about the movement of the planets. Maybe we will be around for the apology about the movements of our planets. Maybe we will. John Corvino, John professor Corvino, of philosophy at Wayne State University Wayne in Detroit. University Thank you so much for sitting in with us today. I hope you don't get fired for this. <laughs> no, I have tenure. Oh, my God, really? Oh, my God, really? Well, yeah, really. Good. I need to get tenure on this podcast. I can't be fired. I can't be fired. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm calling in response to episode 399, where we heard from the woman diagnosed with cancer who was hoping to get hitched while she was still in good health. I recently lost my mom to ovarian cancer, and one thing I learned during that ordeal was how important it can be for friends and family to maintain a positive atmosphere, no matter how hard that might be, uh, because it can be a great relief to the loved one who finds themselves surrounded by horrifying scenarios and ideas and escaping to um, that illusion of normalcy can be really, really comforting. So I suspect that the caller's boyfriend is doing something similar, working really hard to um, maintain the illusion that everything is going to be okay. Uh, the problem with the prospect of the rushed wedding is that the underlying rationale for it forces him to come to terms with the reality that everything might not be okay. You know, him agreeing to that rushed wedding might be the first time that he communicates to her that he knows that she might not have much time left. And this is a violation of that positive atmosphere bubble of denial that he's worked so hard to create and maintain. Um, all of this is just an explanation for his behavior so far. It's not an excuse. So I think this guy um, needs to realize that he's in a unique position where he can bring an incredible amount of joy and satisfaction into the life of this woman that he loves, and she's in this terrifying place. So it's all the more important. I would, uh, yeah, really encourage him to be extra strong in maintaining a positive atmosphere and marry this woman. Hey, Dan, I'm a big fan of your work, and your advice has played a major role in my being in the best, most fulfilling relationship I've ever experienced, so thank you very much for that. But, wow, I couldn't disagree with you more regarding your advice to the woman battling cancer from episode 399. If her boyfriend is not ready to get married, then they shouldn't get married. Marriage is not something people should rush into because of extenuating circumstances, even if the situation is hugely impactful, like with a major health issue. There are enormous legal implications to marriage, particularly for him in this situation. He could end up inheriting massive health care bills, or what if she lives but is permanently disabled? He'd be responsible for her care for who knows how long. And if it turns out he's not ready because this is actually not a good lifelong partnership for him, but he gets married to make her feel better, that would be a terrible burden for them both as well. Not to mention that getting unmarried is incredibly difficult. It's stressful, it's expensive, it can be an enormous mess. I hope they end up living a long and happy life together. But if he gets choked up just having conversations about her health, I can't imagine making him go through the motions of a wedding. That sounds like an emotional nightmare. It sounds like he's been a huge support to her and continues to be one. But what about her supporting him as well? If she loves him, she'd consider the impact a marriage would have on him and his future. If she lives, they can marry afterwards when it's right for them both. If she wants to celebrate her life and their relationship now, then have a big party. That would be wonderful. But do not rush a huge commitment like marriage because of an illness. Get married because you both want it for yourselves, individually and as a couple. I wish them both the very, very best. 
I was 33 when I was diagnosed uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at stage three, so it was pretty darn serious. My wife, who is my girlfriend at the time, was 26 years old, and she decided to stick with me. It was really tough, and I gave her the same outs. Um, but if she wanted to leave, that was fine and totally understandable. Having gone through this myself, if this woman wants to get married, I think the decent thing would be for this boyfriend to marry her. If he has no objections to it, this is kind of an end-of-life request for her, and I think he should treat that as such. Uh, if he really does care for her, it's not that big a sacrifice on his part to make her happy for whatever time that she has left. And if she does die... Just think of how great he's going to feel knowing that he could grant that request to her. And not just grant a request, but do so in the most loving way possible. It, it, it's not really asking that much. And I think she's totally within her rights to say, shit, or get off my face. And by the way, I'm 11 years out from my uh, diagnosis and everything is looking great. I'm in total remission. Uh, don't even have to go back and see the doctor anymore. So yay me and cancer sucks. And we're going to leave it there. Thanks, as always, to all of you wonderful Magnum subscribers to The Savage Lovecast. 206-201-2720 is the number at The Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow John Corvino on Twitter at John Corvino. My latest book, American Savage, is out in paperback now. Get it, get it, read it, read it. Hump is coming to Canada. Oh, Canada, Hump is coming to you. Hump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival currently on tour, is coming to Vancouver to the Rio Theater July 4th and 5th, and coming to Toronto to the Bloor Cinema on July 12th. Go to humptour.com for information about tickets and for other cities that Hump is coming to, and of course for information about making and submitting a five-minute porno film to Hump. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.